Anyways, tonight we're wrapping up chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, and then we're actually taking a break from Timothy uh, for Christmas. We got, we're working on a Christmas series, uh, Nick, Zach, and I, um, and we're throwing that together for you guys. But we'll finish up the book of 1 Timothy in January, but tonight we're going to finish chapter 5, so, you know, we don't want to leave a cliffhanger until January, so we need to wrap this up tonight. So far in chapter 5, we've talked about how we should treat other members of our church talked about older people, younger people, talked about widows, actually talked a lot about widows. We talked about our pastors and how we all kind of interact together and what our responsibilities are toward one another. But our passage tonight wraps up that discussion on how we should be treating the other members of our church, and Paul kind of wraps things up with some miscellaneous information um, or miscellaneous instructions. That's why I called tonight's message miscellaneous, because it's kind of scattered and I, didn't, I couldn't come up with a better title. He just sort of throws four things out there for us, and we're going to look at those tonight. Let's read in 1 Timothy 5, 21 through 25. It says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So there you have it. Tonight is going to be a bit of a hodgepodge message as we study this seemingly hodgepodge passage. This really could have been separated into four separate messages for four separate weeks, but ain't nobody got time for that. So we're just going to do it all tonight uh, so we can wrap this up for Christmas. Um, like I said, Paul gives uh, four additional instructions here to clue us in on, on four characteristics that he wanted Timothy to understand. And we know Timothy was a guy in a position of ministry and, and ministry responsibility. And so if that's you, if that's what you're striving towards, which that should be what we're all striving towards, then these are characteristics that we should understand as well. Uh, they're important for us to understand, albeit some of them uh, for different reasons. But notice the passage starts with Paul charging Timothy, and he, does, he actually does that a lot. Paul charges Timothy over and over again throughout First and Second Timothy. He charges him to war a good warfare in 1 Timothy 1.18. He gave him charge to fight the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12-14, and he charged him to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.1-2. And in this passage, Paul charges Timothy to observe these things, and the, these things he's he's referring to is just the stuff we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. How to treat the elderly folks in our church, how we're to minister to widows, how we're to deal with our pastors, stuff like that. And these things here just refers to Paul's instructions on how the church body is to internally operate with one another. And he finishes that discussion with these four characteristics in our passage tonight, so let's dig into them. The first characteristic is impartiality, and that's what we see in verse 21. Um, And this one's actually one of the clearer ones. Uh, We'll just read verse 21 again. It says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. So Paul is charging Timothy to be impartial in how he deals with the other members of his church. And that's a really important characteristic for leaders to have. They have to be willing and able to set their personal feelings aside so they can make the right decisions in what they do. And that's important in the case of widows, so the church doesn't show preferential treatment to the nice widows because they like them, 
That's important in the case of pastors so that accusations or sin that may come up or get dealt with properly like we talked about last week. So this applies to kind of what we've been talking about throughout these last few weeks. But this is also an important characteristic for us to have as well. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to recognize that we're to love one another. Sure, you're going to have your friends and you're going to have your best friends that you like more than other people. That's just a fact. That's human nature. But if you allow your personal feelings to get in the way of how you treat the people that you're commanded to love, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to wind up in a place you shouldn't be. Um, Because this whole characteristic is one that we see God demonstrate. God is not a respecter of persons. We see that in 1 Peter 1, 17. It says, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. So God, when he judges, he doesn't judge with respect to persons. And Romans 2.11 says, For there is no respect of persons with God. So God is a fair judge. It doesn't matter who you are. He judges according to every man's work. And impartiality is probably the most important characteristic for a judge to have, right? You don't want criminals to go free just because the judge likes them. And you don't want innocent people to go to jail just because the judge doesn't like them. You want trials to be fair and and you want justice to be served. Well, God is a perfectly impartial judge who lets everyone know ahead of time how he's going to judge. That's fair. It's just. It's right. And because God is not a respecter of persons, well, we shouldn't be either. That's what the Bible tells us. Proverbs 24, 23 says, These things also belong to the wise, It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. So man, you're in a position where where you have to judge some things and you have to make some decisions. You should be careful to not have respect of persons and, and hold some people higher than others. Proverbs 28, 21 says, To have respect of persons is not good for a piece of or for for a piece of bread that man will transgress. And this is important in a church body because we're all supposed to be on the same team. And sure, in your church. Uh, there's sure to be people you like, and there's sure to be people you don't like. Anytime you get a group of people in a room, that's the case. There's going to be people you like and people you don't like, and then all the people in between that you can take or leave. Uh, but we're all given the same job to do as a church body together. It's our responsibility to make sure that the gospel is shared and that disciples are made. So like verse 21 says, we can't prefer one before another. Now, on the other hand, Romans 12.10 tells us, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. But preferring one another is different than preferring one before another. We're supposed to prefer one another. We're not supposed to prefer one before another. And when you prefer one another, you're just putting the others around you before yourself so you can love them and serve them sacrificially. But when you prefer one before another, you're, you're actually ranking people in terms of who you prefer over others, and you're acting uh, toward them based on, on that ranking. And when you do that, you're really preferring yourself because you're ranking them in terms of who you like. And it's much easier for you to love and serve the people you like than it is for you to love and serve the people you don't like so much. Well, in a church body, we love one another impartially. And so, yeah, There's going to be people in your church body you don't like. There might be people in this room you don't like. I don't think so because it's a great group of guys. But, man, you got to love everyone in your church. That's that's the point Paul is making here. Like, we need to be impartial and not prefer one before another 
uh, when, it, when it matters. And that's what, and this is why partiality involves hypocrisy. Uh, James makes that connection for us in James 3.17. He says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So partiality and hypocrisy are going hand in hand. So we need to be impartial if we want to avoid being hypocrites. And as a body, we're better off as a whole if we just act impartially toward one another, at least as much as we can. That's why Paul made sure Timothy knew in our passage last week uh, when he's talking about uh, people who sin and elders who sin. He says in 1 Timothy 5.20, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Because our temptation is to sweep things under the rug with the people we like. We want to handle things quietly to prevent our friends from getting embarrassed or, or getting found out what they were doing. But man, that's not the right thing to do for the body. It's not the right thing to do for the church. The right thing to do for the body is to make sure the sin gets dealt with so that the sin's effect on the body is minimized. That's what happens when we prefer one another instead of preferring one before another. And that's important because that kind of partiality, the Bible calls it sin. James 2.9 says, But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are, convic- and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So we need to be as impartial as we possibly can When we're dealing with each other, we need to rely on God's word to know what to do in a given situation rather than how we feel about the people involved. And impartiality actually comes into play in this next characteristic as well. And number two is impeccability. And I chose that word because it ends in ability. (laughs) Impeccability just means blameless or above reproach. But it ends in ability, so it fits with the other points. Let's read verse 22 again. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. And here we have this laying hands thing again. Uh, We saw that back in chapter 4, probably like a month ago. And if you remember back to that chapter, we talked about how the laying on of hands, it's just a symbolic gesture of transferring authority. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by, the, by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And we talked about how that laying on of hands for Timothy was what gave Timothy the authority to pastor the church at Ephesus. His pastoral leaders, the presbytery, gave him the authority to be the pastor, and they demonstrated that authority by laying their hands on him so that other people could see that, that they were deeming him uh, to be the authority of that church. We can see the same thing uh, started the ministry of Paul in Acts 13. Before Paul could go off and start all the churches that he started, the church leadership at Antioch had to give him the authority to do that. Acts 13, 1 through 3 says, Now there were in the church that was at, an Ant- that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So the laying on of hands, it's, it's actually a big deal, even though it's just a symbolic gesture, because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost is the one who was directing everybody, saying, look, Paul and Barnabas are going to go, uh, they're going to go do work for me somewhere else, and they need to be separated. Well, the Holy Ghost worked on Paul and Barnabas' hearts, and he worked 
on the leadership of the church's hearts so that everyone could be in agreement about what God was doing. And to symbolize the agreement of what God was doing, the church leadership laid their hands on them as they sent them away so that everyone involved could see, okay, this is what God is doing. And so I want to be clear that that's what this laying on of hands is. It's not the laying on of hands for healing. We can see that in Mark 16. Mark 16, 18 uh, says, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. That's a different kind of laying on of hands. And we'll actually talk about that when we get to verse 23 in, in our passage tonight. But right here, Paul is telling Timothy not to lay hands on any man suddenly, which wouldn't make sense if he was talking about laying hands on someone to heal them, because why wouldn't you? He's talking about this, this transfer of authority. And this is an incredibly important characteristic because of the implications that occur when church leadership lays hands on someone. Because when you lay hands on someone, you're giving them responsibility and authority. Paul is just warning Timothy not to do that suddenly, because that's something that should take time. And you can understand why that's so important if you look at the rest of verse 22. It says, Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. So the idea is when, when you are the one giving authority to someone else, you are tied to what they do with that authority because you're the one who gave it. So if you lay hands on someone who really screws up afterwards, you know, it makes the connection that you're a partaker in their sins. It doesn't mean you committed the sin. It just means you have some level of responsibility for it. You have some level of responsibility over what they did because you were the one who gave them the authority to do it. So you need to be careful with, with who you give responsibility to. So as a pastor, you keep yourself pure by making sure those you lay hands on are proven first. You give them time to prove that they're not going to mishandle more responsibility by making sure they're properly handling their current responsibility. We've brushed this topic in recent months in 1 Timothy 3 when we covered the qualifications of pastors and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 6 uh, says pastors should not be a novice. They should, they should be not a novice. And then deacons in 1 Timothy 3.10 said, let these also first be proved. So you're not going to let a guy run a church if he's never successfully ran a smaller ministry within the church. And you're not going to let a guy run a smaller ministry within the church if he's never been a part of the church's ministry. Some guy isn't just going to walk in off the street and say, hey, you got to lead our church now. He hasn't been proven. He has, you, don't, you don't know what he's going to do with that. And you're not going to let a guy be a part of church ministries if he doesn't show himself faithful to even come to church. Those are just some examples, but, but that's the idea. If you're not proving that you can handle whatever level of responsibility you currently have, then man, you can't be given more responsibility. Before you can be given increased responsibility, you have to prove you're able to handle what you've already been given. And as a leader, you need to make sure you're not promoting people to positions and roles that you're not sure they can handle. And this is where the whole preferring one before another thing can come in because when you're a leader, it's really tempting to, to get your friends, you know, in on your ministry and, you know, you come help me with this and this, but if they haven't proven themselves, then you're, you're on dangerous ground because if they flop, you're on the hook for that, which is why it's so important for a church leader to constantly be investing into people who he's working with so that, so that they can continue to grow. And as they grow, they'll be ready to handle more and more responsibility. That's why we, we use ministry to build men so that they're capable of more and more service to the Lord. But all of that takes time. 
And time is the enemy of patience. And people nowadays just, they don't have patience. They're not patient. Even well-intending people just want more and more responsibility. They want more influence. They want more ministry for the Lord. So this is incredibly important for you to understand as you're growing. Man, just don't be impatient with regard to your ministry responsibility. If your leaders are making you wait to do the ministry you want to do, just know that they're trying to protect you. They're trying to keep you from from something that they're not sure you're ready to handle. And know that they're also kind of protecting themselves as well because they don't want to see you crash and burn because, man, they care about you. They're trying to help you. Um, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And so, man, it's a good thing to want ministry responsibility. You just have to understand that you can't be impatient. Continue serving God where he has you right now and let him prove you are ready for whatever he has next for you because God uses time uh, to, do, to do great things in you and, and to grow you up and stuff like that. Maybe what he has next for you is what you want, but maybe it's not. Are you willing to follow the Lord in that? We should be. Ultimately, you follow, you follow God and what he's asking you to do through your church leadership. Well, if you're doing that, he's going to use you. And at the end of the day, I think that's what we all really want. We just want to be used by the Lord. And so we just have to commit to following God and, and what he's asking us to do uh, through our church leadership. Well, this third characteristic, uh, number three here, is a little bit different than the others because it's not necessarily a characteristic you pull directly from the passage, but number three is mutability. I had to look this one up in a thesaurus. Um, I had to find it. It's not one of those that came naturally. Mutability just means capable of change. And I realize that's not what Paul is telling Timothy in this verse. He says in in verse 23, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So directly, Paul is just telling Timothy, Hey dude, when your stomach's upset, drink a little wine. He's telling him to take some medicine. And clearly, the whole not given to wine thing we looked at in 1 Timothy 3.3 doesn't mean no one is ever allowed to drink alcohol under any circumstances because he tells Timothy to drink a little wine a couple chapters later. But I'm saying this verse demonstrates mutability or the capability of change because we see in this verse that how God operates has changed by the time we get to 1 Timothy. And by that I mean that men performing miraculous healing is actually over by the time Paul writes this letter. The the last miraculous healing is recorded for us in Acts 28, verse 8. Uh, And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So Paul healed this guy by laying hands on him. But the letter of 1 Timothy was written about three years after that event happened. And instead of miraculous healing, Paul is recommending medicine for Timmy's tummy issues. (laughs) If Paul could have healed him, wouldn't he have healed him? That wasn't that funny. It wasn't that funny. If Paul could have healed him, wouldn't he have done that? Well, we see in 2 Timothy that Paul couldn't heal this guy named Trophimus either. 2 Timothy 4.20 says, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. So what's the deal? Why is Paul not healing these ministers so that they can, t- they can serve God unhindered by physical illness? 
Well, the simple truth is that the miraculous signs and wonders were coming to an end. And, that's the, reason, and, and the reason why they were coming to an end was because they simply weren't needed anymore. Remember, the signs were given to the nation of Israel. They were given to the Jews. 1 Corinthians one twenty two says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And those miraculous signs were used to confirm God's new revelation to man. That's a very important thing because before the New Testament was written, they only had the Old Testament. Duh. But God didn't expect everyone to just believe new things that people were saying without proof that what they were saying came from God. The signs and the miracles, those were that proof. So as God's apostles spoke new revelation to people, that new revelation was confirmed by God's signs. That's what Mark 16 tells us in verse 20. It says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. That's what the signs were there for. Well, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, Israel as a nation had rejected Jesus Christ three times. And because they continued to reject him as their Messiah, he shifts his message from being primarily to the Jews to being primarily to the Gentiles. And by the completion of the New Testament, God's new revelation had been fully revealed and fully confirmed. You get to the end of the book of Revelation and there's even warnings about adding things to the book and taking things away from the book. God closed his new revelation. He closed scripture at the end of Revelation 22. So new revelation uh, can't be given until the second coming of Christ because the Bible says you can't add things or take away from it. So there's nothing new that comes with that. So with no new revelation happening, there's no more purpose to signs and wonders because there's nothing new that needs to be confirmed. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So when the Bible was completed, when, when mankind's partial understanding of God goes away, our current knowledge of God is only limited by the amount of time we spend in His Word, because He's given us everything we need in his word. None of this means that God can't miraculously heal people today, by the way. We're actually told to pray for sick people and to ask God to heal them. James 5.14 says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So God can clearly heal people. There's nothing in scripture to suggest that he can't or won't. He just doesn't use men to do it miraculously anymore because there's no longer a reason to. So the way God operated throughout the book of Acts was changing by the time we get to 1 Timothy. That shouldn't surprise us because there were only three times in history when abundant miracles were commonplace. Moses with the plagues and the manna and the miracles in the wilderness leading the nation of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. Miracles were abundant. Then later on, Elijah with the prophets of Baal and calling down fire. Miracles were abundant in the life of Elijah and Elisha. And then you have the book of Acts, where the apostles were sent from Jesus, confirming the word with signs following, miracles were abundant. And sure, you can find God doing miracles between those times, but in general, there's not, there's not many miracles going on in the stretches of time between those events, because God saves his miracles for when he's going to use them to confirm something. And he'll pull them back out during the tribulation, when again, his focus is back fully on the nation of Israel to get them to understand who he is. That's mutability. And the main thing we should take away personally from this verse is that it's incredibly important 
that we understand the Bible in context. Because if we see things that God used to do in Scripture, we're going to get very confused about why He's not doing those same things today. And that's why we have to rightly divide the word of truth. Because how God operates throughout history changes. And we'll get lost in the Bible if we don't keep that in mind and just let God decide how he's interacting with man at different points in history. And this last characteristic will be quick. Number four is visibility. Uh, Let's read verses 24 and 25 again. It says, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So the point Paul is making here is that you can't always see what God is doing through other people and in the ministries of other people. Sure, some sins are visible early in people's lives. Some are only visible later. Similarly, some good works are only visible beforehand. You can only see the results, or you can see the results early. Others are temporarily hidden. So we can't always trust what we see in the ministries of other people. And even in our own ministries, we can't trust in in. We can't always trust in what we see. God tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, man, sometimes God does some stuff and he works in some ways that we don't really fully understand and we can't really fully grasp right away. But this is balanced by the idea that God tells us that we can know people by their fruits, specifically false prophets. Matthew 7, uh, 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree that bringeth forth, or, I'm sorry, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So the principle of sowing and reaping applies to everyone. Galatians 6, 7 through 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And the point I think Paul is making to Timothy here is that He needs to trust that God will reveal to him what needs to be known about the people in his church. Because as a leader, Timothy can't be caught off guard when he learns something bad about one of his church members, some sin that caught up with someone. He needs to be able to handle that calmly, rationally, and impartially. And on the flip side, he needs to be patient when waiting to see the results of the good things his people are doing, because those results aren't aren't necessarily evident immediately or clearly. I think this characteristic comes down to giving people the benefit of the doubt until you can't. That's an important trait for a leader to develop, but it's something that should be true of all of us. Because yes, a good tree is going to bring forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree is going to bring forth evil fruit. But man, until you see what the fruit is, you don't know what the fruit is. It's, it's uh, Schrodinger's fruit, I guess. It's the cat that's in the box that's dead and alive at the same time. You just don't know what it is until, until you see it. So you want to give people the benefit of the doubt until you can't. If we can learn to give people the benefit of the doubt, we'll have far fewer problems as a church body as we seek to help one another rather than just thinking the worst about everyone. Man, I haven't seen this guy do much of anything. Like, he's working all the time, but nothing ever happens. Is is God really using him? 
man, talk to him. Figure out what he's doing. Try to help him instead of assuming the worst about him. Um, if you can do that, then, then we'll be better off as a church body. And so my apologies if tonight seemed really scatterbrained, but that's just kind of the passage we had. Four characteristics that we need to keep in mind when we're working with the other members of our church body. We need to be impartial so we don't turn into hypocrites. We need to be impeccable so we don't get ahead of ourselves in ministry. We need to understand God's mutability throughout history so we can rightly understand the truth of his word. And we need to understand the visibility of people's fruit might not always be clear to us right away. We need to rely on God to reveal what needs to be known. In actuality, it's actually hard for me to pin down you know, one particular takeaway from this passage because it almost feels like four messages crammed together in a, in a really tall message sandwich. But man, I, I trust that God communicated to you what you needed to hear tonight. Do you need to examine your impartiality or, or your lack thereof? Do you need to be more patient in your ministry goals and be content with God proving you in your current role? Do you need to get a better handle on rightly dividing God's word so you don't get caught in the weeds as you study? Discipleship is a great place to start with that. Or do you need to better trust God when it comes to the fruit of your labor? Because God doesn't always reveal to us how much he's actually using us in the lives of other, other people. We just need to trust him in that. So what do you need to do as you leave here tonight? Let's pray. God, man, we thank you so much for your word, and uh, we thank you so much for just how much stuff is in, your, is in the Bible that, that we just need in our lives, Lord. Um, man, we, we want to know how to live, and we want to know how to, how to serve you, but we have a book that's just full of things that we can learn uh, every, each and every day. And so, Lord, I just pray that we'd take that seriously and that we would apply what we're reading, apply what we're learning uh, to our lives so that we can better serve you and we can um, just be prepared for whatever it is you have for us in the future. Lord, I love you, and just pray that you'd uh, bless our time together tonight and bless our time together this weekend. Uh, pray that we're a blessing, uh, helping rake leaves of, of some of the elder, elder, elderly folks at our church. And I just pray that you would use the, the holiday season just as a time for us to be witnesses and for us to, to be able to share the gospel and be able to uh, show the love of Christ uh, to our friends and families. In your name we pray. Amen.